As we come to John chapter 14, verse 1, I I remind you just to sort of put yourself into a framework here where you're remembering the scene of John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and even in chapter 17. The scene is that it's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. In less than 24 hours from John chapter 14, Jesus will be in the tomb. There in the midst of that setting, uh, it's an evening. He's eaten a Passover meal with his disciples. And now he's pouring out his heart, telling them how to be prepared for his soon departure. And in the midst of this, we come to John chapter 14, verse 1, where we read, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus spoke to his disciples, assuming that their hearts were troubled. Now, why were their hearts troubled? I'll tell you why their hearts were troubled, because of what Jesus just told them. You could say that Jesus was to blame for their troubled hearts in this present circumstance, because Jesus just told them three things. He told them, first of all, that one of them would betray him. That was Judas, who by this point in the meal had left them, and so now there were only 11 disciples and Jesus, their master, around the table. He told them also that not only would Judas betray betray him, but that all of them would deny him, every one of them. Every one of them would experience a failure of courage to truly align themselves with Jesus Christ at the critical moment. Then the third thing that Jesus told them was that he was leaving them. And that this three-year discipleship program, which normally would be a much longer program that a disciple would have under his rabbi, was being cut short very abruptly, and Jesus was leaving. Those three things together, there's a traitor, all of you will deny me and I'm leaving you, that troubled the disciples and for good reason. And in the midst of this great trouble that they felt in their hearts, Jesus had, he had the boldness to look them in the eye as they sat around that table and say, let not your heart be troubled. Guys, it's okay. Don't have a troubled heart. My friends, I want you to understand something here. There is no doubt at all that they had a troubled life at that moment. A lot of trouble was coming into their life. Yet Jesus showed us something that's very powerful and that we need to grab onto. It is entirely possible to have a troubled life and to not have an untroubled untroubled heart. Do you understand the distinction I'm making? Many of us act as if it was God's goal for our life that we would have an untroubled life. That's pretty much where all my prayers go to, aren't yours? You know, that that I would have an untroubled, smooth life, that whatever troubles come up, God would just smooth them out. Friends, I want you to understand, Jesus has the boldness to look at you and I, just as he looked at those disciples and says, you're going to have a lot of trouble. But I'll tell you this, you can have a troubled life, but in the midst of that troubled life, an untroubled heart. Have you ever seen that in somebody else? Or maybe you've experienced it in your own life. Look, Things seem in crisis mode all around you. It seems like everything's falling apart. But in the midst of it, you have God's perfect peace. You have an untroubled heart. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Jesus promised that we could have that. How? Look at the second half of verse 1 of chapter 14, where he says, You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, friends, I'm not saying that that's everything about having an untroubled heart in a troubled life. 
But I will say this, that's where it begins by saying, God, I believe you, I trust you. Jesus, I believe you, I trust you. It begins with putting our faith, our trust, our confidence in Jesus Christ. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now why? Why can we have such confidence in Jesus? Look at how he brings it up now at verse two. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Men, you can believe me. You can have confidence in me because I'm telling you, I've seen the world beyond. I tell you with confidence, in my Father's house are many mansions. You know, one thing I love about Jesus' words right here is the confidence that he has. It's not, hey guys, I'm going to die tomorrow and I hope there's a big man upstairs who can have a place for me. There's no lack of confidence in Jesus. He knows. You know why Jesus knows like no other person has ever known? Because he came from heaven and he was going back to heaven. He knew his father's house. He knew it in a way that nobody who has ever walked this earth before ever knew it. Even Adam and Eve didn't know the father's house the way that Jesus knows it. He knew it in a way that he could have other confidence. I don't doubt. I don't worry. I can speak with other confidence. I know that my father's house is for real. And in my father's house are many mansions. Now, if you have a different translation of the Bible, say like the ESV version, the English Standard Version, you'll see that it says many rooms. And I have to say that according to the technical aspects of the original language, that's probably more accurate. The the original word that's used there has the idea of dwelling places or rooms. It doesn't necessarily suggest mansions. That's something that comes to us more from the Latin translation. It's complicated. I don't need to get into it. But let me say this. Knowing the Greek text, you could say rooms is better. Knowing the nature of God, mansions is better. What do you think? There's going to be a little cubicle for you in heaven? No way, friends. Look, we're used to that living in Santa Barbara, and some of you guys live in little tiny places. But it's not the tiny house movement in heaven. No way. It's the big house. It's a mansion to dwell with God. But I don't want to dwell on the word mansions. I want you to go back and look at that word in verse 2, where he says, there will be many mansions. Many. He needs a lot. Why? Because there's going to be a lot of people in heaven with Jesus and his Father. There's going to be a lot. It's as if Jesus could see what the disciples could never see, that he could see millions upon millions, even billions of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, across the generations. He could look and he could see it. They will be there with my Father in heaven. There will be people who put their trust in Jesus who repent of their sins and and confess them before them and decide to believe in Jesus, there will be those people from every tribe and tongue and language and they will be gathered together in their father's house. Jesus says, we're gonna need a lot of places. That's why he says in verse three, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going. 
I'm going up there. I'm going ahead of you. I'm preparing the place for you. You 11 around the table. Judas was already gone. You guys will be with me there. You'll be with me. I'm preparing a place for you. Friends, do you understand? Love prepares a place. Isn't it true? Uh, When a baby's about to be born into a family, if the family can, if they have the resources, the ability, what do they do? They prepare the baby's room. It's always a lot of love that goes into a baby's room, isn't it? They pick the colors. They pick a theme. Why do you need a theme for a baby's room? They pick a theme for the baby's room. It's the colors and it's ducks or horses or clouds or whatever they pick for baby's rooms. You guys know. I don't. But I know this. A lot of love goes into it because they're preparing a welcome for that baby. At least the first baby. By the time you get to the third or fourth, they're putting the poor child into a shoebox or something like that. I see this in our own home with my wife. We have a lot of guests over at home. And this summer, we've had a lot of guests already, and we're going to have a lot more guests. And I see the loving way that my wife prepares for guests. She had a little blackboard out in front. She writes their names, welcome, you know, and they put the name of the guest. She'll put a little chocolate on the pillow and make sure everything's nice. I never really think much about doing those things, but why? It's because she's full of love, and love prepares a welcome. Does it seem strange to you that Jesus loves you so much that he's preparing a welcome for you in heaven? That's how much he loves you. And when we pass from this world to the next, we're going to find out that the way's been prepared for us, and that's a comfort to us right now. It's not like God's going to be shocked to see us up there. You may be shocked, but God won't be. (laughs) And friends, this principle has given such assurance of heart to so many people. Yes, God, you love me that much. You prepare a welcome for me. The author of the book, Peter Pan, I read this this week, and I was fascinated by it. His name was James Barry, and he, he wrote this book, Peter Pan, and several other books, and he wrote one book about his mother and his life growing up in Scotland. And he wrote about his dear, sainted mother who loved Jesus so much, even though that she had had a life full of hardship, even including the great hardship of losing one of her sons at an early age. But she loved Jesus so much, and she was so comforted by this particular passage, John chapter 14, the first several verses, that when you just dropped open her Bible, the pages would automatically open to that because she read it so much. He even said that when she was in her older age and her eyes failed her, she could no longer read, that she would pick up her Bible to that page, and it would just open there naturally. And she would take the Bible, and she would kiss those words because they were so precious to her heart. And why shouldn't it be precious to us? Why shouldn't we be cheered greatly by this very thought? I mean, I know it sounds a little bit silly, but I like to think of it working this way, and just indulge me a little bit of silliness. The the, the son goes up to the father, Jesus finishes his work on earth, and he goes up to the father, and the father says, how did it go, son? And Jesus, oh, it went so good. The, the, the spirit is poured out. The work is going so well. Uh, 3,000 came to, to me on the day of Pentecost. It's amazing. The work is going so well. And he says, Father, here's the deal. We're going to need a lot of room up here. There's a lot of people coming into the kingdom. And then the father says to the son, well, you're a carpenter. Get busy with it, son. That's <laughs> nah, just silly to think in those terms. But Jesus said he'd be preparing a place for us, doesn't he? He's building, he's preparing, he's earnestly anticipating our arrival because he says there in verse three, I will come again to receive you to myself. I promise to come for you. I promise. 
that our distance won't remain forever. Why, verse 3? That where I am, there you may be also. Friends, this is the core of what makes heaven wonderful and glorious. That Jesus is there and we are there with him and we are there with him closer than we have ever, ever been before. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand that streets of gold is not what makes heaven heaven. Now, I believe heaven has streets of gold. I believe there's pearly gates. The Bible says something like that. There's some gigantic pearls in heaven, and out of those pearls, they make gates. I believe in streets of gold. I believe in pearly gates. I believe in angels in heaven. I believe in light that's there all the time. I I believe all of those things, but none of those things in and of themselves make heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus Christ there. That's what makes it heaven. And I'll tell you, if you had a place with streets of gold and pearly gates without Jesus, it could very well be hell. No, but with Jesus there in all of his presence, it becomes like heaven itself. The other thing it shows us is that, look, honestly, if you're really not into Jesus, then you don't want heaven, do you? If Jesus is of no interest to you, then what good is heaven going to be to you? Heaven is all about Jesus. It's all about God and the revealing of himself to his people. That's why we ask him to prepare us for heaven right now and to give us a greater longing for Jesus in and of himself. Now, in verse 4, Jesus said, And where I go you know, and the way you know. I love Thomas's response in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love Thomas's very open and questioning. He just says, Jesus, you're talking as if we all understand you. I don't understand you. By the way, that's some of the most beautiful talk that can go on in church. I'm delighted when somebody comes up to me after a message and says, Pastor, I didn't understand what you were saying. Can you explain it to me? You see, I always think of it this way. If somebody doesn't understand me, I'm not like Jesus. I'm just a poor preacher here. But if somebody doesn't understand me, It's my fault. It's not theirs. I didn't explain myself clearly enough. And I'm happy to have the chance to explain myself more clearly. Well, Thomas didn't understand. Jesus, I don't get it. We don't get this way you're talking about. We don't get it where you're going. And I love that he asked that because he gave Jesus the opportunity to say what he said in verse 6. Did you notice it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not say that he would show a way. He is the way. He he didn't promise to teach a truth. He is the truth. He didn't promise that he would offer the secrets to life. Jesus said that he is the life. Do you understand how wonderful this is? Do you understand how Jesus offers himself to humanity and says, here I am, humanity. Here you are. You say, I've lost my way. I don't know where to go. You need Jesus because Jesus is the way. You say, I'm confused. I don't know what to think. You need Jesus because Jesus is the truth. You say, I'm dead inside and I don't know if I can keep going on. You need Jesus because Jesus is the life. Isn't that beautiful? Everything we need in that regard is answered for us in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. 
But then he added the second half of verse 6. You saw it. He says, I'll read it to you. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I understand something, friends. I understand that this statement of Jesus is very controversial and it's opposed by our present culture. Our present culture doesn't like this. I'm here to tell you, I'm just here as a messenger. I'm not trying to shape the message. I'm just trying to deliver the message. And if somebody can point out to me that I'm not teaching you just exactly what Jesus taught, well, then I'd like to know, but I think it's just plain and simple. Jesus said that he was the only way to God. He was the only way to heaven. And I know that if you go out in our community and you talk about Jesus, you have a lot of people who are interested. But when you start talking about Jesus being the only way, people get turned off, people get offended. And I understand that in one respect. We live in a very pluralistic age, don't we? We live in a very open, tolerant society. And it seems very closed-minded to say there's one way to heaven. But all I can do is repeat back to you the words of Jesus Christ. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. And if there was a different message that Jesus said, I'd be giving to you a different message. But this is what Jesus says, that he exclusively claims to be the way of God, the truth of God, and the life of God. And if you want those things from God, you got to go through Jesus. You, you can't go somewhere else. You can't go through another religion. You can't go, please understand, Jesus was setting himself apart from the institutions of Judaism of that day. Didn't the Jews of that day think that they could get to God through the temple? Jesus says, no more. Forget about the temple. Look to me. They used to think they could get to God through the sacrifices on the altar. Jesus said, forget about the altar of sacrifice. Look to me. The altar isn't the way. The temple isn't the way. I am the way. And he says it the same. He says it today regarding other religions, whether it be Islam, whether it be uh, Buddhism, whether it be another dozen religious faiths that you could mention. Jesus says, listen, whatever cultural good they may or may not do in our society, forget all of that. They're not the way to God. I am the only way to God. I will admit, my friends, that that is a very exclusive statement to make. The only thing I would say is, Jesus said it, not me. If you've got an issue with it, bring it up with Jesus itself. But the second thing I would say is, this is a very consistent theme in the Bible. What do I mean? This isn't anything new. When God gave the Ten Commandments, what was the first commandment? I'll read it to you from Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. If you want to have a bunch of other gods, fine by me. Wait a minute, is that what he said? May I read the verse correctly? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? But, but Lord, the Canaanites are really into Baal and Asherah. And Lord, you know the Egyptians, how much they'd like their gods. And the Babylonians, don't even get me started with their gods. God says, forget about their gods. I am the only way. Those gods aren't true. 
So what we're talking about is not some new innovation with the New Testament, not at all. What Jesus is simply saying is taking that idea of the monotheism of the Old Testament and bringing it into the fullness of God's revelation in the Son. That's why he says in verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'll put it to you this way. If Jesus is not the only way to God, he's wrong. Matter of fact, he's wrong about something that's a pretty big deal. Don't you agree? If he's wrong on that point, why would you trust him on any point? I guess what I'm saying is this. If Jesus is not the only way to God, then he is not any way to God. Because he claimed that he was the only way to God. And he disqualifies everything else. I know there's something in our culture that looks at that and says, that is not fair. God, if you were really fair, God, if you were really loving, you'd make multiple ways. How many? I don't know. Five, six? How many do you want? You'd make multiple ways. God, if you were really fair, if you really loved us, you'd make a bunch of ways. You'd give us a smorgasbord to go through and we could pick whatever way pleased us. It's not fair for you to say there's only one way. Okay, let me just speak to that thinking just for a moment. I want to take that thinking and bring you to the cross. I want you to look upon the cross and see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, nailed to the cross in agony because he's bearing the sins of the world. I want you to see him tormented because he's enduring the shame and the judgment and the guilt that every human sin ever deserves. Do you see Jesus hanging on the cross right there? Okay, then go up to the cross, look at the Son of God hanging on the cross, and say this to God. Hey, you know what, God? That's great for a start, but I think you need to do more. Really? What more could God do than that? Nothing. No, but God, you know, I like a few more options on my menu. So, so good start, great start, God. No, I'll, great start, but you got to keep it going. My dear friend, do you see what an offense that is to God? Do you see that God can give no greater demonstration of his love and grace and mercy than by drawing all humanity to himself at the cross and saying, here it is. And for us, us as human beings, to come before him and say, yeah, you know, uh, roll out another four or five options because I just like to choose. No, no. But God does reach out to the entire world through the cross. Do you understand that Christianity is the most pluralistic, tolerant religion ever founded on the face of the earth? Do you understand that an early argument against Christianity from the Romans, one of the things that the Romans said against Christianity was, look at those Christians, they'll take anybody. They looked at an early Christian gathering and they would look there and they would see a slave and a master sitting side by side in worship and it scandalized them. You can't have that. They would see rich and poor, slave and free, Greek and barbarian, man and woman sitting right next to each other worshiping God on the same level because the ground's level at the cross. They'd see it all there and they go, no way, you can't have a religion that's inclusive. 
But the glory of Christianity is it reaches out to every tribe, every tongue, every language, every culture. And it says, if you will come by Jesus, you are welcome here. You don't even have to change your culture. You don't have to change your language. You, you can worship God in your own cultural forms, in your own language. We'll translate it into your language. Here it is. It's open there for the whole world. But you must come by Jesus. And to fail to do so, friends, to leave this common ground in Jesus Christ, it's spiritual suicide. Going on now to verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. Jesus explained, you know me, don't you? And if you know me, you know the Father. And then Philip pipes up there in verse 8, show us the Father. I wonder what Philip wanted right then. Did he want a photograph of God? Did he want a miraculous manifestation in the room full of light and glory? What did he want? I don't know exactly what Philip wanted, but look at how Jesus replied to him there in verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Do you see what Jesus said in verse 9? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you understand what an audacious statement that is? It reminds me that we can read the most audacious things in the Bible and just go, yeah, yeah, people say that all the time. People say it all the time. If you want to know what God is like, just look at me. Who says that? Crazy people say it. Evil people say it. Or Jesus, who really is God, says it. And that's what Jesus was. He really was God. And so Jesus could say the most outrageous thing. He could say, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Friends, to see Jesus is to see God. It's even better than a photograph. My, uh, my granddaughter... Serena, she's about three years old, a little more, about three and a half by now, I suppose. And the other day, she was over at her house, and she was looking at a picture, a, a paper picture, a postcard. She was looking at her hand, and you know what she did? She did this. She swiped it as if she would see a next picture. To her, a picture is just something like on a screen, and if you want to see more of them, you swipe it. It was my jaw dropped when I saw that. She just, that's what you do with a picture. You swipe it and see more of them. What would it be like if you had a picture of God? Let me tell you, if we had a picture of God, I don't even know what it would be like. But you'd ask, well, how do I know it's legitimate? How do I know it hasn't been retouched? How do I know Photoshop hasn't been put on it? Listen, if you had a picture of God, whatever that might mean, it would not be as reliable in communicating to us who God is than the picture of Jesus Christ that we have in the four Gospels and in the New Testament. 
What the Bible tells us about who God is through the person of Jesus is better than even the best picture. It's better than the greatest artistic depiction because it shows us this is who God is. We can know who God is. We can look to Jesus and have it revealed to us. That's why Jesus says, believe me, or at least believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You can believe in me, Jesus says. I truly represent God. Or if you don't believe me, just look at the miracles that I've done. Look at the works that I've done. You've seen them, and through them, you have seen God as well. Now he says in verse 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Verse 12 is very powerful. I think verse 12 begins, one of three answers that Jesus gave to assure his disciples. He's going to give them three assurances. And we only have time today to cover the first assurance. Next week, we're going to get into the next two assurances that he gives to his disciples. But here's the first assurance. Men, I'm going to heaven. I'm leaving you, but the work is going to go on. I wonder how the disciples felt around that table. Oh, great, Jesus. You say you're going. I guess we're all fired. I guess the work is over. I guess we disband the disciples. This is done. Little experiment's gone. You're going to heaven. You're leaving us. Jesus says, no, no, no. You guys are going to hang together. And as a matter of fact, you didn't get fired. You got promoted. Greater works than these you will do. Greater, not lesser, but greater. He who believes in me, verse 12, the works I do, he will do. Jesus expected those who believe in him to carry on his work in the world. He didn't expect the disciples to end the work, and he does not expect us to end the work. And not only does he expect us to continue the work, but to do it in a greater way than even he did it. Look at it right there in verse 12. Greater works than these he will do. What did Jesus mean by that? I need to spend a few minutes talking about that because I think there's some real misunderstanding about that statement that I need to clarify. Some people believe that when Jesus said greater works than these, he meant more spectacular. Jesus did some pretty spectacular things, don't you think? That whole walking on water business, three people documented that he raised from the dead, uh, feeding people out of small amounts of uh, bread and fish, miraculously, on and on. Jesus did some very amazing things. He said, well, you're going to do even more amazing things. Friends, I don't think that that's what Jesus meant. I don't think he meant greater in, magn- greater in, in type, greater in being spectacular. I think Jesus meant not as sensational, but greater in magnitude. Jesus would leave behind a victorious working family of followers who would spread his kingdom to more people and places than Jesus ever dreamed of. And it's happened. Friends, there are more than a billion people on the face of the earth today who name the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're all born-again Christians, but a more than a billion people name the name of Jesus. That's pretty impressive. Jesus had a fairly small circle of ministry, but he said, no, you guys are going to do greater things. You're going to take it far, far beyond. Friends, on the day of Pentecost, more people trusted in Jesus after the first sermon that the early church preached than had believed in Jesus during the whole three years of his ministry. Greater works indeed. What I don't think that Jesus meant was that we would do more sensational things than Jesus who did. There are some people who believe this. You know, hey, we need to get more sensational here. And Jesus said you'd do greater things, so go out and do more sensational things than Jesus. Come on, he promised you would. Come on, get busy. Friends, can I just say very point blank to that? 
to the people who teach that and promote that, I just simply say, you go first. Go ahead. Should be easy. Jesus raised three people from the dead in three years. You've been walking with Jesus a lot longer than that. How many people have you raised from the dead? It said greater, so it must be four, five, six. Jesus could feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. Come on, let's do it. I, I mean, if that's what you really believe, then it should be clear in your life first that this is true. But friends, again, I think that's a mistaken way to take this. Jesus meant this greater in magnitude, not greater in a sensational nature. Now let's just finish up with verses 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Do you know how the greater works that Jesus has called us to do get done? One of the big ways they get done is through prayer. Through God's people asking Jesus to do things in his name. Do you know what it means to ask in Jesus' name? It does not mean just to add that to the end of your prayer. Now, I do that all the time when I pray, but don't think that that's really what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Because you could pray a prayer something like this. Uh, Lord, I pray that I never have a problem ever again in the world, and I pray that Satan would be completely put out of business forever and ever, and I pray that the Lakers would win the NBA championship next year. And you go on, and then you just say at the end of it, and in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, man, it's all going to happen because I said in Jesus' name. It's not like a magic spell that you put at the end of your prayer. God says, oh, I didn't want to do it, but he said in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, I have to do it. Now, that's not at all. Friends, what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, first of all, means to pray according to his merits. Do you understand that when I come before God, I don't come in the name of David Guzik. I come in the name of Jesus. Which name would you rather approach God's throne in? Your name or his name? Jesus says, I give you the right to come before my throne in my name. How great is that? Would you rather go to the bank in your name or in the name of a fabulously rich person? You know, Bill Gates or something. I'd rather go to the bank in Bill Gates' name, thank you very much, rather than my known name. I'd rather go to heaven in the name of Jesus in prayer than in my own name. That's the first thing it means. But it doesn't only mean that. It also means not just to go in his merits, but to go in his nature and character. So the things I pray for are the things that Jesus wants. I pray according to his character, his nature. And I realize that the goal of prayer isn't to get my will done, but to further God's will through prayer. So I'm always trying to discern, Jesus, what do you want to do in this situation? What does your nature say? What does your character say? And I can boldly pray before God, God, I believe I'm praying this in Jesus' name. I believe that, Jesus, this is what you want to do. I believe it because of your word. I pray, believe it because of the work of your spirit. Jesus, please come and do this in our hands. I pray this in Jesus' name. And that's a prayer to pray in Jesus' name. Do you get the distinction? We pray in Jesus' merits, and we pray according to his nature, his character. That's how to pray in Jesus' name. And if you sum all that up by saying at the end, in Jesus' name, amen, well then praise the Lord for that. But if you don't pray according to his merits, if you don't pray according to his nature and character, you can say in Jesus' name all day long and it's not going to do any good. 
This is how we do the greater works that he invites us to do. So that's what I want to do. Shouldn't I pray right now? And pray that God equips each and every one of us to receive from him and go out and do these greater works that he's called us to do. This is what he wants us to do. I'll just read that statement to you one more time. Look at it here. It's in verse 12. He who believes in me, the works I do, he will do. That's God's will for you. To do the works that Jesus did. To do good in his name throughout this world. Father, that's our prayer. It's wonderful, Lord, to be able to pray with confidence after just read this in your word. After just reading, God, that you want us to go out and represent you to do your works in this world. So, Father, we as a congregation, we just say, Lord, work on us, fill us, correct us, but then, Lord, send us, commission us. We see a needy world all around us. We see a world that is perishing because people do not know the way, the truth, or the life is Jesus Christ and him alone. Lord, would you commission us and equip us to be the difference in this world, to do good in the name of Jesus. And Lord, because we know this is your will, we feel like we can pray it with great confidence. We feel like we can say it. We can say in Jesus' name to this prayer. So friends, let's all say it together. Ready? In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.